0: My name is Sheila Boston, and I am the president of the New York City Bar Association. Welcome to one and all. We have a very exciting panel here for you today. Uh, But before we begin, I would just very much like to get us into the right frame of mind. So I wish to call out the names, the names of Richard Brooks, Michael Brown, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott, Alton Sterling, Brianna Taylor, and of course, George Floyd. Now, there are many more names that I could have called. This is but a representative group. But I thought it appropriate to begin in this way to provide some context for us today. For this is why there are protests in the streets. I think that if we're going to resolve the issue of racial discrimination in policing and other facets of society, we must have some real talk, candid discussions, ones which include and acknowledge the anguish and pain black and brown communities have endured, frankly, for over 400 years in this country. That's the context in which we now find ourselves. And as a member of the Black community, let me just say that this is not a new phenomenon. We are one nation. But certain communities have had a very different experience when it comes to encounters with the police. And now, finally, because of eight minutes and 46 seconds of an in-your-face police brutality of a Black man captured on video, we in America are at an inflection point. Now remember, America is the great experiment. And French political scientist Alex de Tocqueville once said, the greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. He also said America is great because she's good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she'll cease to be great. Let me be very clear today. I am not anti-police. What many of you may not know is that I'm actually the wife of a retired New York State trooper. I'm also the mother of a child in law enforcement. I'm thankful for those in police enforcement who do their job and do it well. Moreover, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I'm full of hope because I think honest discussions are now taking place. More Americans are crying out Black Lives Matter and the people on the streets protesting consist of all generations and are, and are multiracial. I'm full of hope. And I want to lift up a quote by Senator Cory Booker. Hope confronts. It does not ignore pain, agony, or injustice. It's not a saccharine optimism that refuses to see, face, or grapple with the wretchedness of reality. Now, before I introduce our panelists, I have to say I have received messages from some folks who were or are offended by the title of today's discussion. Please know I didn't mean to offend. But also, no, it was I who chose the title, and I stand by it, because frankly, it was my intent to jar your sensibilities and to cause all of us to confront the fact that the racially discriminatory misconduct of the police is at its core a dehumanization of Black and brown people. It's a policing of Black and brown bodies, as opposed to protecting and serving all of human citizenry. I submit we need to get a little comfortable with being uncomfortable and have some tough discussions. Lawyers solve problems and we must figure out how we can work together to eliminate the problem about which we speak today. So without further ado, let me introduce our stellar panelists. First, we have the inimitable Loretta Lynch. She is the first African-American woman in US history to be sworn in as attorney general. She was the 83rd Attorney General of the United States from 2015 to 2017 during President Obama's administration. Before that, she served as a U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York two different times, as well as special counsel to the prosecution for the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. She has now rejoined those of us in private practice in New York City and is a partner in the litigation department of Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton and Garrison LLP, my mentor, a friend, and by the way, a fellow PK. That's a preacher's Kit for those of you who don't know. Next, I have Paul J. Fishman. He is now my partner and colleague at Arnold and Porter K. Scholler LLP. There he leads the firm's crisis management and strategic response team. He's a member of the firm's white collar defense, commercial litigation, securities enforcement, and appellate practices. He served as the US Attorney for the District of New Jersey from 2009 all the way to 2017 where he supervised the pattern and practice investigation of the Newark, New Jersey police, negotiated a consent decree and oversaw the first year of court monitoring. Paul is not only my law partner, he's also my fellow Princeton Tiger. Next, we have Nicole Austin Hillary. She is currently the executive director of the US program at Human Rights Watch, which focuses on improving and reforming our criminal legal system. She was formerly the first director of the Brennan's Center, Washington, D.C., office, which she opened in March of 2008. At the Brennan Center, she oversaw the center's advocacy and policy development work and served as its chief representative before Congress and the executive branch. So she has testified before state and local legislative bodies as well as Congress. I introduce to you Lorenzo M. Boyd, Ph.D. Professor Boyd is the vice president for diversity and inclusion, and Chief Diversity Officer at the University of New Haven. He's also the director of the university's Center for Advancing Policing. Professor Boyd has served as a sheriff, as well as corrections officer, and he now studies and teaches policing and has been doing so for over 20 years. And last, but certainly not least of all, we have the former Chief of Police, J. Scott Thompson. Chief Thompson has over 27 years of law enforcement experience, During his career, Chief Thompson ascended through the ranks of the Camden, New Jersey Police Department and became the chief of the police for Camden, during which time the city innovatively changed its policing model and successfully used community policing to reduce crime. Also, from 2015 to 2019, Mr. Thompson was the elected president of the Police Executive Research Forum, that's a Washington, D.C., policing Think tank, which represents more than 3,000 international law enforcement executives. I am so very pleased to present our panel for today. Now, as the focus is on policing, I would first like to ask Chief Thompson and Professor Boyd about what influenced each of you to choose law enforcement as a career. Let's start with Chief Thompson. Welcome.
1: Sheila, hey, thank you for having me here today, and uh, thank you for uh, being uh, being able to be a part of this amazing group of, uh, of individuals on the panel. Um, why did I be start becoming a police officer? You know, oftentimes I'd ask myself that very question. I did not grow up wanting to be a police officer. Uh, I naturally had uh, a disdain for bullies, I'm kind of hardwired in my, my DNA that when I see trouble, I like to go towards it. I like to try to help people. Um and uh, particularly when, you know, my roots are from the city of Canada, an extremely challenged community uh, that, that I had saw o- over my lifetime of growing up there had been really overrun by, by drug warlords, if you will, and negatively defining everyone's life. And so I didn't become a police officer because I so much wanted to enforce the law or write tickets. I just I felt as though that I, I, I could go into that situation. And although I didn't know what I was going to do. But that I would try to do something better, uh, or make do something to make things better for the people out there. So, which is also what has motivated me a lot of as a police chief to, to reform. I, I just I did not like the perception that when I would even see my own organization, my own community, when they would look at us as being oppressive or being bullies. It, it, that was really a major motivator for me to change locally and also to to, to try to uh, inspire change nationally as well as as president of Perth.
0: Got it. Thank you. All right, Professor Boyd, I'm going to put you on the spot. You are a Black man, and you know the history, the complicated relationship, if you will, between the police and communities that are Black and brown. Why did you decide to go into police enforcement?
2: Well, it's not that I decided to go into law enforcement at all as much as it picked me. You know, coming out of undergrad, I needed a job, most of my friends coming out of high school went into various forms of policing and it was a job that afforded me an opportunity. And I thought I'd be in for about six months and then get a real job somewhere. But I noticed some of the things that were going on on the inside and that helped uh, propel or, or pique my interest in the criminal justice system. Because not only did I see that there were differences on the outside, how people were treated, I saw on the inside, whether in the sheriff's department or Boston police or the state, that things on the inside were, uh, were different. And I remember when I was uh, first sworn in and they pinned on the badge and I remember the, the speech distinctively that we are no longer black or white or male or female, that we're all blue. And I really bought into that and I really loved that. But then I started to notice major differences throughout, the, throughout my career. And then as I went into my PhD, I decided to look at attitude differences between black and white police officers. And then I published an article because I realized that we all may be blue, but some of us were light blue, others of us were dark blue, and the rules of engagement were very different. So I published an article in 2010 called Light Blue Versus Dark Blue. So how I got in is more of a blur. What happened while I was in is what I've been focusing on.
0: Got it light blue and that's interesting okay appreciate that chief thompson i'm coming back to you i'm going to put you on the spot sir especially as a white male with respect to police culture you know we sometimes hear oh the whole entire police all of them are racist and then frankly in response we often hear oh you know there are just a few bad apples in the barrel do you subscribe to the import of either of those statements and irrespective of whether your answer is yes or no, do you that America's policing system has a race problem?
1: Well, you know, I, and I, I've heard this question be asked of, of many people over time. And I, and, and, and I also, I, I find it interesting, some of the answers to it, and how um, um, people kind of dance around it. You know, look, I, I think we've got, it's, it's no secret, there's a, there's a significant race problem in our country. I don't know how we can look at policing in the criminal justice system and not say that it's reflective of everything else. Uh, I do believe that there's racial issues in policing. Uh, as Lorenzo just said, when I came on, even the organization I first came on was very racially divided. So it would be rather it would be disingenuous to say that there wasn't an issue between the police and the community when there's issues within police departments themselves that are based upon race. So, um, and I also find that the more I talk to, to the members of the community, and again, you know, Canada is 96% minority. Um, and, and when I really started to listen to them and the things that they would say to me, you know, it, it, it's clear that the frustrations of the people, the criminal justice system is not just one based upon race, but it's also so, so socioeconomics as well, which a lot of times are, are, have, have racial contingencies to them, right? Is that in, in Camden people, and this is in many cities, they would, they would see that it, we have a criminal justice system that and the ideals of it are great, that says let 99 guilty men go free, lest one innocent person go to jail, but the reality of it is, it's a system wherein it's far better to be rich and guilty than innocent and poor. And poor people just don't see themselves as, as getting being able to get a fair shake or have an equity. And police are the representation of this failed system. Um, now, as far as with the officers themselves, like I said, it, there, there are some, some problems within organizations. Um, I do believe that the overwhelming majority of the people that I worked with and the people that I... I've had exposure to, are, are really good people. They're altruistic. Uh, I think that they're, they're working within a, a failed system that's not doing anybody any good, um, uh, or I should say doing them any favors from trying to repair the, the problem uh, of, of perception. But I do think that we, from from a policing perspective, I don't think it's healthy to continue just talking about bad apples. I think we're beyond that now. I think our failure rate is, is shown just a little too high of late, particularly in light of its, many communities have been telling us this, but it's now being proven by cell phone video, and that we need to look at at, at really what are the branches of the trees that are giving us these apples, and we need to start going upstream, particularly within as law enforcement executives and the like, to try to, to really address these issues that are driving the public response that we're seeing today.
0: Got it. Professor Boyd, I once heard you say, quote, police don't have a race problem, America does. Anything to add to
2: that? Well, in full disclosure, that was actually a quote that I got in a conversation from the former police commissioner uh, in Chicago, Gary McCarthy. And when we look at what's going on in America, it's pretty obvious that race is a major issue, not only in America, but it's also built in the system of criminal justice. Remember policing, and, and as a policing scholar, I acknowledge the roots of policing in this country in the slave patrols, and as we move through Jim Crow, and then as we move through uh, the Civil Rights struggle, and as we move through, uh, and you know what,
0: Professor, the- we're going to get into those details, even okay. Just hold on for one second, get in the- Okay. a little bit. <laughs> but I appreciate you. Okay, I want to. I guess we'll have Attorney Austin Hillary. Let's have you jump in for a second here. Um, I know that you two believe that the policing of black and brown bodies is but one example of a societal problem in America, and namely, we call it systemic racism, right? So would you please just very, in a short manner, please define what is systemic racism? And remember that we have non-lawyers on with us today in the audience, as well as lawyers.
3: Thank you so much, Sheila. Uh, And and I love the way you give me a question that could easily take up eight hours, but I'll, I'll do my best to be succinct. So the thing we have to realize is that In this country, Black and brown people, particularly Black people, were brought to this country in 1619 as chattel slaves. They were brought here to be property and not to be full citizens in support of an economic system that was made to benefit white land-owning men. And that is the foundation of our history in this country. And systems in this country, whether it be the policing system, housing, education, our economic system, all stems from that history. And some of the racist tenets that were a part of our original foundings have been built into every system that has made America. And so when we talk about systemic racism, we talk about how those early foundational principles, beliefs, and understandings have been a part of how other parts of this country have been built. And so when we talk about needing to attack systemic racism, we mean that we have to attack a panoply of areas, not just policing, but housing, education, our healthcare system, that original foundation upon which this country was built is evident in all of those mechanisms that exist in this country.
0: And thank you. Well, now, Professor Boyd, he started out with it, but I want you to continue with it. Uh, let's talk about how we got here to this point, and with respect to policing in particular.
3: Attorney Austin Hillary. Oh, I'm sorry because you said Professor Boyd. Oh, I did. No, I said he started us
0: out. and oh, tried to go there, but I wanted you to take that line if you would.
3: Uh. <laughs> how did you get here. Why are we having these problems with policing? We are having these problems with policing. And and, and Professor Boyd started to discuss this. Uh, Policing was started in this country as a way to control slaves and as a way to control other disenfranchised groups. It was not initially started as a system that was simply to provide protection for all and to provide safe communities for all. he mentioned the slave patrols. The slave patrols were some of the earliest representatives of what policing looked like in this country. And if you look historically about other ways in which uh, law enforcement has been used, it's been used against unions, for instance. It's been used as ways to quell uh, resistance in the streets. Um, And so we are seeing some of these problems because we have seen community members trying to really fight back against that historical context in which policing exists. And if we really want to address these concerns and these problems, we have to begin to, one, go back to the foundational reasons why we have policing. And then we also have to look at the ways in which policing has grown. What are we now asking police officers and law enforcement agencies to do? we're asking them to deal with issues that absolutely have nothing to do with their training and their background. We're asking them to deal with mental health issues. We're asking them to deal with homelessness. We're asking them to deal with domestic violence issues. That is a part of why we have these problems right now, because we are asking them to really be the panacea for all that ails the country. Ails the country, rather. And we can't have that. We have to, when we talk about reform, start looking at what other systems do we need to address and how do we need to ensure that law enforcement and policing work collaboratively with other experts and other systems rather than asking police to be, again, the panacea and the be-all and end-all for all of the problems that exist in this country. Got you.
0: Professor Boyd, you have anything you want to add to how we got here?
2: One of the things that's missing in policing is the fact that we ask the police, as the attorney just said, to do way too many things. The police do two things really well. They detain and they use force. If you're calling the police and either of those is not the result that you're looking for, then calling the police is not the right answer. We need to push back and let the police be the police. And do we need to hold other city services accountable for doing the things that they're supposed to do?
0: Okay, let's go over to Attorney General Lynch. You've held the position of the highest law enforcement officer in the land. Generally speaking, what is it that the police across the nation currently do? And Professor just and um, Austin Attorney Austin Hillary uh, told us a little bit about what it is that the police, but can you tell us what is it they're really supposed to do if there is such a thing? What, what is your opinion on
4: Thanks so much, Sheila. Um, And I want to thank all the panelists who've spoken so eloquently on this topic. Professor Austin Hillary, your work just really, um, people stand on the shoulders of the work that you have done and are doing. And Professor Boyd, thank you for showing the face of black law enforcement, which I think is frankly the face of true patriotism in this country. That's another topic for another panel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... You know, when we talk about what should the police do, I really think it's been covered beautifully by the by the two previous panelists who just spoke. But what I, I think we have to really drill down on what do we really want police to do? I mean, the motto on the side of almost every police car or certainly written above almost every police station is to protect and to serve, to protect and to serve. And really, when you think about that, that is the essence of policing, but it is not divorced from how we view protection and service in our overall society. And I've always felt as a prosecutor that what we protect as a society tells the world what we value as a society, what we choose to protect and how we choose to protect it. And conversely, whom do we criminalize? Whom do we see as threatening the things that we hold dear enough to protect, really defines us as a society in so many essential ways. So When I think about the heart of policing, I think about the essential question of Is who is it that gets the benefits of law enforcement, and who is it that tends to bear the burdens of law enforcement, and are those equally dispersed within society? And when they are not, as sadly in our society, they have not been. For generations, you get tension, you get stress, you get pain, um, you get unconstitutional policing, you get you know an incredible, highly high rate of uh, of police violence against certain communities, and you have a, you have certain communities, particularly black and brown communities, who feel increasingly disconnected from the police, as if it is of no benefit to them because they don't see a benefit. So there are certain other specific things that we ask police to do. But what we really are asking them to do, they really represent society. They are the face of government for so many citizens. For so many people, the only government interaction, or certainly the majority of your government interactions in your life, are going to be with someone who's law enforcement. You get a speeding ticket. Your home is burglarized. You're accused of a crime. Or you have to go down to the police station and get a report to file an insurance claim. Most people don't talk to the mayor of their town every day. But you probably see a police officer once or twice a day as you go through life in your city. So they represent government writ large to so many people. So as we think about what are they doing and what do we want them to do, we have to understand that what we are really saying is how does government relate to every group in this country? Who is protected and served, and or who gets the burdens of law enforcement instead of that service? So I think we do see, and frankly, this, this this wide array of things that police are asked to do, and there's a number of reasons for that. A lot of it is economic. You know, over the la- over the past, I'd say, generation, we've seen a tremendous shifting in the funding of municipalities and cities, particularly small towns, and you know we see them shift resources away from mental health treatment, for example, or homeless services, for example, and not replace them with anything. It is absolutely appropriate that our mental our, that our citizens who are, have challenges in the area of mental health not be warehoused um, in some of the horrific places that we saw 50 and 30 and 40 and 20 years ago. But we never replaced uh, many of those facilities with enough community-based support for those individuals. And what happens is when those individuals are struggling and they are dealing with society in a way that is really a health issue but it reads disruptive it reads criminal we call the police instead. Similarly we have children in school. Children in school for a variety of reasons they're young they're energetic you know we talked about the prison to school prison uh, school to prison pipeline I mean, say that clearly. Um, But that's often, again, where we first see the over-policing of black and brown bodies, uh, of of young boys and young girls of color, because kids who cannot be controlled in a school, um, because schools are stretched, and they no longer have enough resources, and teachers, as we know, have far too few resources. We have now put police in schools, not just for the first purpose of keeping weapons out, but for controlling the behavior of children. These are choices that we have made. These are things that we are asking police officers to do that I just don't think was really on the mind of of Chief Thompson or Professor Boyd when they first joined the academy. You know, I I, I have a feeling that they thought more about protecting the community from violent crime as as opposed to protecting one third grader from another. So we've expanded the role of police in many ways, because we have, in fact, already defunded a lot of essential services that our communities need.
0: And okay, we're going to get to that topic. Hold
4: on. Hold on right. for a second.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. You know what, Actually, I think I'm going to ask you this question, Professor Boyd. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk now about militarization of the police. Can you can you explain what is meant by that and what if any views you have on it just very quickly.
2: I think at some point we moved away from the mission of policing and serving the community and we pushed too far into enforcing laws, but if you think about it upwards of 90% of policing is reactive waiting for crime to happen, then springing into action. And as crime is getting more violent, the police step up their game and get more violent. But the problem comes when we start to over-militarize our police departments, and there are many departments that get surplus uh, equipment from the, from the military. You get a lot of training in a couple of different um, uh, bases from the military. The problem becomes the military views others as the enemy. We need the police to view people as the community. So we need a paradigm shift as we're moving forward to try to keep people safe, realizing that these are members of our community that we're talking about.
0: Got it, got it. Attorney General Lynch, I'm gonna come back to you for a minute because I, you know, basically our police agencies tend to be local. We say politics is local, right? What role, if any though, does the federal government have in all of this?
4: make sure I'm unmuted, the federal government has an incredibly important role to play. Um, And certainly, I I was quite conscious of it because the attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer of the nation. Yet, as you point out, the majority of policing is at the local level. Um, So when you think about that, we think about it both from the federal government being an example, but also providing support and services to local law enforcement. Uh, In many, many ways, you have uh, the ability to provide federal funding to support police activity. And in many ways, that's that can be an important way to influence police policy and police culture. Um, the federal Power of the purse, right? Power, power of the purse. Incredible. And the federal government, for example, funds many of the body camera operations that, that the 18,000 uh, local police departments across the country use. Because again, as I have noted before, Local municipalities are often very cash strapped, and it's just a function of of, of what's happening in our economy. And current, as we see with COVID, it's not getting better. So local authorities rely on the federal government for things like body cameras, grants. We also provide a lot of training to local law enforcement, but the other way is aside from funding, and, and you know, we talked a little bit about militarization uh, as well. There's there's federal funding available for that. We try to to put guardrails around in the Obama administration. They've been opened up uh, in the current administration, but um, in, in there's also a, an important oversight function because, of course, police most policing is local. Most policing is and has to be responsive to local communities and their specific needs. But what all policing must be is constitutional. And the federal government has an incredibly important role to play in that area in making sure that as local police go about the important work of protecting people, they do it in accordance with the restrictions of our constitution. And that's where accountability comes in. And so we see that the federal government has the power, for example, to investigate local police departments to determine if they are in fact providing constitutional policing. We've seen examples where that has not been the case and the pain that results from that, for example, Ferguson, Missouri, Baltimore, Maryland, I could name the jurisdictions over and over again. Um, And so the federal government does have the power to, to investigate local departments as well as individual officers if in fact their actions cross that constitutional line uh, and deprive people of their civil rights under the under the federal constitution. It's so a very um, important, very important
0: I hadn't really appreciated that I, I must say um, that you look at individuals as well as entire police departments. Um, that's actually a nice segue to my buddy and partner. I know he's been he's usually he's a talker so he's been very good. I know you're aiming you're ready to talk and it's all good. I'm so excited you're here. But tell us a little about excuse me. Mr. Fishman, oh, yeah, about, exactly. uh, <laughs> tell us about your experience in Newark as you were overseeing um, a consent decree and all of that, the investigation, all that entails. Why don't you give us an example here, a little place So
5: so, so Newark is a good example um, of what my very close friend and former boss, um, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, uh, was just talking about, because the truth is, I, mean, I will come back to this a little bit later when we talk about the, the new legislation that has been introduced in both the house and the Senate and the way it affects some of the things that, that, um, that she was just talking about. But you know, the, 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 when the federal government comes in either in an individual case where an officer has done something that violates the law or when a police department has systemic issues, the government's coming in because there's been failure and there's been either individual failure or systemic failure and the role of the federal government is to take a look in particular places and try to figure out what went wrong, how it went wrong, and what needs to be done about it. And, and in Newark, um, you know, we, had, we had, had heard reports for years and had seen some examples uh, of situations in which the newer police were stopping way too many people for reasons that seemed quite pretextual. Uh, there, were, there were reports of use of force that, that, that seemed to actually not be collected in the data. Um, there were a variety of other issues. And so we started an investigation together with the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice in 2011 and, and, and did a pretty deep dive, not trying to hold individuals accountable. The goal of a pattern and practice investigation Um, which is based on a statute that Congress passed in the early 1990s after the Rodney King incident in in L.A., um, gave the department jurisdiction to look and see whether a particular department of justice, a particular police department, had engaged in literally a pattern and a practice of unconstitutional behavior. And so... We, did, we, we, we looked at a lot of files. We interviewed a lot of people, both in the community and the police department. We talked to lawyers and judges and cops and federal agents to find out what the experience was. And what we learned, basically, was in a city that was, that's 54 or 55% African-American, that 80% of the pedestrian stops were of people of color. And lots of the reasons for those stops in the reports were loitering, hanging out, in the wrong place. I mean, they're all stuff like that. And, and so there was this pattern of police officers stopping folks of color for reasons that seemed to be no reason at all, but certainly weren't constitutional reasons to stop people. The other problem was that there, in, 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 in the previous, I don't know, three or five years, there had been only one use of force complaint against a police officer that had been sustained by the police department. And that struck us as, I'm not sure exactly what the right number was. Perhaps perhaps Professor Boyd knows those statistics better than I, but one in five years is just not a tenable result. Uh, And and the training wasn't there. And and part of the problem, honestly, was that the money wasn't there. Um, And so we can talk about that later in the concept of defunding police. Um, And so ultimately, when we, we, we did our investigation, we brought them to the city, and we were communicating with the city all along. Um, to explain them what we were finding, and ultimately we we negotiated a consent decree that provide. A consent decree is nothing more than a settlement agreement that's enforceable by a court. And we had a judge who who was assigned the case, and we jointly with the city agreed on a monitor, former Attorney General of New Jersey Peter Harvey, uh, and a monitoring team, and and there and and the consent decree, which is many 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 pages. Uh, it, it details a series of benchmarks and reforms that the, in which the, the city had to engage, its police department had to engage over five years, basically. Um, and if they, if they don't meet all those benchmarks, then the period of monitoring gets extended. And, and the idea is to give the force of law a judicial order to force the city to engage in reform that would, that would effectively change the culture of policing in Newark.
0: Okay, did it work?
5: So it's working.
0: Okay, <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, and,
5: and, I, and I will say, I'm going to tell this one quick story. Is that you know there um, the the in, and I've told this story publicly before. Um, in the in in the late fall of 2014, uh, before when we were in the process of negotiating a consent decree. Um, I, I, I learned, and I won't tell you how I learned, that the, that the mayor, the new mayor, Mayor Baraka, was was contemplating bringing in a new public safety director, a fellow named Anthony Ambrose, um, who was had been on the force for many years. He had left. He had gone to a county prosecutor's office, which is our equivalent of a DA's office, to be their chief of detectives. And he was thinking about coming back to be the public safety director. Uh, and, and he called me because he knew we were negotiating a consent decree. And he asked me whether what would be in store for him if he took this job. And I said to him, "Here's what I'm going to do for you." And the day before Christmas, I gave him the draft consent decree, which was not a public document. And I said to him, "Do me a favor. Take it home. You have ten days until after the first of the year. Take it home and read it." Because he'd been the chief before, and he was um, um, he was a he was probably in his mid to late fifties. Italian, raised as a cop in Newark, knew the culture for the last 30 or 40 years. I gave him the consent to take it home and read it and tell me if there's anything in here that you think we can't accomplish and if there's anything in here you, as the new public safety director, can't make happen.
0: And what happened? What did he say? He called me back in two days
5: and said, it's great.
0: Oh, great. Okay.
5: And and so what you (laughs) need, but what mattered to me as the U.S. attorney and, and I had this same conversation with, with, with Attorney General Lynch shortly thereafter, uh, was we needed a partner, a willing partner. You can try to cram cultural change down the throats of people at the tops of lots of institutions, police or not, it won't necessarily take. But if you have a willing partner, and I'm looking at Scott, too, because Scott and I did lots of work in Canada, and he was an extraordinarily willing Partner, and we didn't have a consent decree candidate, but there was extraordinary change that got that happened it, under his leadership. If you have an, a, a partner who's willing and who commands respect from the community and from the force, you can achieve great things. And I think Newark is on the path to becoming so a true a much leader, state of the art, twenty first century police
0: department, a true leader. True leader, got it. Top down, even. All right, very quickly. Please share with us legislation. So Attorney General Lynch told us about the power of the purse. Now I want to talk about the legislation that's actually out there or in Washington, D.C. with respect to police reforms. Right. So, so high level.
5: Yeah. So, so the legislation does a couple of things. Um, So first on the, on the, for, for, for federal investigations and law enforcement, on the, on the affirmative, something's gone wrong with an individual or a police department, we have to fix it. It changes the standards in a couple of ways. First, it, for an individual prosecution of an officer for violating somebody's constitutional rights, it would, all legislation would change the intent standard from willful, which is a currently very high burden, the highest burden that there really is in criminal law for intent. It would change it to, instead to knowing or reckless. So that would be a huge change and make prosecutions, federal prosecutions, much more achievable for those kinds of cases. The second thing it does is on the pattern and practice investigations that the Attorney General Lynch and I have been talking about, it would give the federal government subpoena power in those investigations, um, which it doesn't currently have to achieve in, in, in those investigations, and also the ability to take testimony under oath. That would be a huge change third thing it does is it would give state attorneys general the power to institute those investigations and those kinds of lawsuits. That's what the House bill does. That would be a huge sea change um, in the way those investigations are done. The other thing it does, the second thing it does, is it sets standards for federal law enforcement. Right? It, 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 it directs that the attorney general, either him or herself or the Department of Justice generally, set out a bunch of protocols and policies in a variety of areas. And, and some of those are are preventive, no chokeholds, no no-knock warrants. Some of them are prescriptive, more training, less profiling, that sort of stuff. And then the, and then pro, and then the thing that it does, that pro, and, and, and as, and as um, Attorney General said, what it, what, because the federal government is a leader and an example, if the federal government's doing it, then there will be some great pressure on state and locals to follow. But the, perhaps the most significant thing that the legislation does is use that power of the purse to basically say to, to the Justice Department, all these burn grants you give out, all these other grants you give out, you can't give them to municipalities or states that don't have a whole raft of particular things that we'd like to see. They have to report their use of force data. They have to report bad cops. They have to train in particular ways. They have to explore certain things. They have to have good policies for recruiting, retaining, and hiring diverse police officers. Police forces. Uh, They have to have good use of force policies, they have their profiling policies, early warning systems, and you won't get money, states, local governments, unless you do those things. That That would change, I think, the trajectory of the way the federal government deals with state and locals. They wouldn't just be providing technical assistance, it'd actually be saying you have to do this.
0: Got it. Thank you so much. Okay, let's dig in a little more into some of these particular police reforms. We only have a limited amount of time, so we're only gonna dig into three, okay? Uh, Those three are going to be training, qualified immunity, and defunding the police. Then if we have time, we'll do a lightning round on the other things, but I really wanted to concentrate on these three in particular. Okay, we're gonna start with training. So I think it only makes sense to begin with Professor Boyd, since that's what you do. Uh, we hear about bias training and de-escalation training. Um, you know, can you describe to us the various tools or types of training there are for police?
2: So I've been training police officers now for two decades. And the problem that I see is when you bring me and my team in, and we spend eight hours or 16 hours with your department and leave, after a week or two, your people are going to go back to what they normally have done. So you need to have training that's reinstituted and part of in-service training, but the other thing we do at the Center for Advanced Policing at the University of New Haven, the reason we're not the Center for Traditional Policing is because we bring community members and police officers together in the same room. So every eight hour training includes two hours of community members because I need the police to understand the lived experience of the people that they're policing. We need them to understand when you roll into a community, how does that make people feel? When you arrest people, what happens to the rest of the family? Because all the police actions are discretionary. They don't have to affect the arrest. They don't have to use force, they choose to. And I want them to see from the eyes of the community, what happens. So if you change training and the the problem, the inherent problem in, in police training is it's an us versus them scenario and you keep hearing every stop could be your last one and you know every whatever could be your last, Well, that's true. But last year was among the safest year for police officers. You'd have to go back prior to the Nixon administration to find numbers as low for police homicides. So if we can revamp police training and remind them that they're actually guardians and not warriors, then that's a pathway forward.
0: Steve Thompson, you wanna add anything to that about training?
1: There you go. Yeah, I would just uh, you know I think Professor Boyd it just really said it perfectly. Uh, you know, it starts with policy. Uh, policy is extremely important because that establishes the guidelines. But culture eats policy for breakfast. And what's important to, to develop the culture is to invest in the training of officers. I can tell you from our experiences, we put a tremendous amount of investment into training our officers to to ha- to go to, to be able to actuate what we believe is one of the most progressive use of force policies uh, in the country. Uh, And Professor Buit's point, uh, we brought the community in to help us shape this use of force policy. But we we did not just want to check the box training. We wanted to change culture. And we've invested in reality-based training, which is very resource intensive. But you've got to put people in situations. It would be like, like you becoming a lawyer and never doing moot in law school or becoming a doctor and never doing a residency. Uh, We just can't show PowerPoint presentations and expect police officers to go under stress and perform them, particularly particularly in light of uh, the the art of de-escalation, which is what everybody wants. Everybody wants officers who are gonna lower the temperature in the room. And I I do think that um, investing in that gives us a tremendous return on investment, particularly in in the area of peace dividends.
0: I'm just curious. What do you do, either one of you, professor or chief? What do you do if you find a particular police officer who is not uh, willing to accept this new idea of a paradigm shift of a culture change? Well, th- that's where
1: leadership comes in, right? I mean, and that's one of the challenges that you hear police leaders across the country talk about is where they have the responsibility but they don't have the authority. And this is where some of the the angst comes in when people talk about the unions and the protection of of the status quo. Um, but you know with 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 a clear vision and an investment and training, you can hold people accountable. And it's just you just have to have the resolve to do that. And you need to understand too, and this is where elected leaders are, are vitally important, is that there's going to be a reaction to police leadership that that hold their people that level of accountability. It's going to disrupt comfort levels. There's going in that this is when elected leaders need to be firm in their in their, their resolve and in their promise of of change is change is just not going to be uh, the perception of it it's going to have to be actual but you know as far as I'm concerned I've, I've separated a lot of people that didn't buy into uh, what I was uh, demanding and, and that was addition by subtraction as far as I was
2: concerned. I think the key is, to make sure that you're able to get rid of bad officers. And a lot of times the unions, as much as they protect officers, and and I'm a huge fan of organized labor, but there needs to be a release valve to get the bad officers out. And the perfect example of that, and and Chief, I applaud what happened in Camden because in a really short period of time, Camden went from being one of the most violent cities in the country. And I think Newsweek had an article last year, that is now one of the most livable because they had community standards that the police were willing to um, to rise to. And the ones that weren't, you get rid of them because they're problematic because even good cops want bad cops off the job.
0: Got it. All right, let's move on to qualified immunity. And actually, I think I'm gonna switch it up a little bit. You ready? Attorney General Lynch, I'm actually gonna ask you, if you don't mind, to explain what qualified immunity is. And remember, we have some non-lawyers on the line.
4: Okay, um, actually, I, I, I think um, my friend and colleague Paul Fishman explained it rather well a few minutes ago. In the sense that officers are protected, uh, and not just not just police officers, but almost everyone in law enforcement enjoys a certain protection. If you even if you commit wrongdoing in the course of doing your job, there is a protection afforded you, and that's called immunity. It's qualified because there, there's some ways to chip away at it. For police officers, what it means is that if they commit wrongdoing, let's say that there there is a, a bad shooting and someone is killed, uh, unarmed person, and you know they weren't involved in a crime, and um, and and the, the citizens want to bring a civil lawsuit against that officer, as they would if the neighbor had shot them, um, you know, in an, in an inappropriate or negligent way. Um, They're often not able to do that if if the officer was on the job, because they have that kind of protection. In order to overcome this qualified immunity, it's an incredibly high standard. You've got to show what was in their mind. You've got to really show that they really intended to step outside of their duties and harm that person. It's called the willfulness standard. It's the highest standard that there is. The discussion that's going on now, and again, I think Paul actually summarized it very well, is whether to, to instead police officers to a more common standard of was this a reasonable way to act did they should they have should did they know or should they have known that their actions were going to cause this harm which is a standard that other citizens are held to when we try and and hold them civilly accountable for their actions
0: all right i want to i want to be a little provocative Uh, maybe maybe not chief thompson what do you think about this idea of uh changing qualified immunity to basically a lesser standard as far as proof of, of police misconduct?
1: Well, I, I, you know, I, uh, let me qualify my answer with I'm not a member of the bar uh, and I don't fully uh, understand the full scope of everything that, that entails. Um, you know, I, I, I'll answer this way. I do believe that particularly in light of use of force issues, I don't believe that police should just hold themselves to the lowest constitutional standard of the grand economy. One of the things that we did in our use of force policy was that we we hold ourselves to a higher standard and we train to that higher standard. I don't think any profession can can hold itself up as as being progressive or elite if its standard is the is the, is the, is the form. Uh, and that's what they hold each other to. And I think one of the issues that becomes really sensitive with the public at large uh, is is when police use force, wherein they're the creator of jeopardy. And the best example I could give you is Tamir Rice, who you you, you uh, previewed in, in the opening comments, uh, and Professor Boyd knows exactly what I'm going to talk about. Now, is when there was a call that a, a young man had a gun. Um, there's not a police training curriculum in, in this country that would that would recommend a police officer pull directly up to that individual in that type of situation, thereby creating the, the jeopardy wherein the officer really limited themselves to a life or death split-second decision, which cost this young man their life. And my understanding of the, of the lens through which most of these uh, litigation and, and prosecutions are, 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 uh, are viewed is they look at the moment that the trigger was pulled and not everything that led up to that. And that's where I do think that um, – I, and I, I think – I think policing, if policing doesn't start to to hold itself to a higher standard and move in that direction to avoid that, uh, I think we're going to be going there through legislation and through court decisions and the like, wherein that officer created jeopardy will be something that officers will be held personally responsible for as well. So, and I think that does pierce the the qualified immunity um, um, threshold uh, if if things do change, and I don't necessarily know if, if it does now. Um, but you know, look, I, I think that uh, policing is is contingent upon the consent of the people, particularly in, in, in a democracy, and um, that that evolves constantly. And this, the shade, the sands uh, are shifting underneath of our feet. And I do think that we need to change policing to hold ourselves to a higher standard, perform better, uh, and you know. If if we can't do that on our own, then I think laws are going to be changed, and it's going to force us there. And qualified immunity is one of them. Then buckle up because it's coming. Feel I mean, like just jump in for one one sec. Sure. Since uh,
5: first of all, Scott undersells his experience. He is not a member of the bar, but he knows uh, often more about. I
0: noticed bar. that in talking uh, about yeah, no, him no, I'm, I, I'm, it's, it's, I'm it's, just it's, saying
5: ca- it's characteristic of his modesty. But I'll, I'll leave that. So so look when. Loretta's right. You can can prosecute people afterwards. And there are some number of cases that the Department of Justice will always bring in the egregious egregious cases. But the bandwidth of the department is not unlimited, and they can't bring every case. And so the the truth is that aside from the criminal sanction, that one of the ways the federal courts get involved in these cases is when a private plaintiff, um, a family member or a victim, him or herself, sues the police under Section 1983 for an unconstitutional act against a, a person who's been shot or beaten or something like that. And, and there's nothing in that statute that mentions the words qualified immunity. There's nothing in that. It is a doctrine that's been created by the courts over time. And the courts have created this doctrine because, you know, partly because they want to sort of cut off for good reason, because some of these lawsuits are not don't have any basis but some do they want to cut off the ones that don't because they cost money and time so that's one reason they've articulated it they, and they've also said they don't want to chill people from becoming police officers and they don't want to chill people from doing what they might have to do under the circumstances to actually um, act, you know perform their jobs and so this do- but this doctrine as it's developed over time has basically been reduced in the language of the Supreme Court itself to protect all but the plainly incompetent or those who knowingly violate an obvious rule. And and that's the standard that people object to, right? And so the statute that the the various bills that are now in the House and the Senate would either, depending on which bill you read, some of them would eliminate qualified immunity altogether and others would would either lower or raise the standard depending on which side of it you're looking at so that it would permit more lawsuits this law would permit more lawsuits to go forward and to reach the stage where they get adjudicated by a jury
0: got it got it okay thank you for the lesson on community let's move on to defunding the police and i'm going to switch it up a little bit on y'all because i want to get attorney austin hillary back into the conversation here so get ready get ready what are your views on defunding the police? It's a loaded question. It's big, but go for it.
3: So Sheila, I, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork first, which is this. I appreciate all the conversation we've been having about qualified immunity and about the legislation. But for those of us in the progressive advocacy and rights community, we really feel strongly that these conversations just scratch the surface, if you will. I certainly believe that we should be looking at mechanisms for change that deal with police training, that deal with qualified immunity, uh, that deal with ending chokeholds and other tools that are at the disposal of police. But that just scratches the surface. We really strongly believe that we have to do three things. One of those things is that we have to start investing in communities. and look at how we can advance public safety through investing in those communities. We have to have people in their own neighborhoods, in their community groups, tell us what they want. Uh, Often these conversations are very erudite. Those of us who have quote unquote expertise and who have degrees and who've been working in these issues do all the talking. One of the things that we do at Human Rights Watch is we actually go into the communities we get on the ground and we partner with the people who are mostly, who are most impacted. You know, case in point, as you, at the beginning, went through the litany of victims uh, of police violence. One of those names um, that's also on that list is Terrence Crutcher. Terrence Crutcher was killed by a white female police officer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And when that happened, we went to Tulsa and we spent two years there looking at how police were interacting with community members and what existed in Tulsa such that Terrence Crutcher's death was the result of his interaction with police. And we believe strongly, and and we did a report that was released in September of 2019, and so much of that report talks about what the community expresses about how they engage with police, what they think their needs are with respect to uh, healthcare, education, housing, what they need from their leadership and what they need from police. And so I really just have to say that we have to really expand these conversations to start looking at that and to make sure that the people who are at the heart of whom the police represent have a voice in these conversations. Secondly, when we talk about defunding police, let's be really clear. I don't think anyone believes that police and law enforcement shouldn't have the tools they need in which to do their job but what that looks like is different we for instance advocate that we should be talking about divesting and reinvesting you heard professor boyd earlier talk about how uh, talk about the militarization of police why are we giving monies to police agencies so that they can mimic military forces Rather than, for instance, putting money into improving schools in those communities, so that people get better educations and get better jobs and are less likely to find themselves in the criminal justice system.
0: I'm sorry, I have to know. Professor Boyd was doing the SNAP. I'll do it. Yes.
3: <laughs> so that. So so we have to do that kind of deep dive. So when we so so defunding really shouldn't be the language that we use. It should really be about divesting and reinvesting in ways that make our community stronger and help to ensure that how police and communities collaborate makes more sense. And then finally, I think we have to then be looking at accountability mechanisms that have to be put in place. I call those things the triumvirate for success. Those are the three pieces we have to be looking at. And so just saying defund the police, it's simplistic. To me, that's a sound bite. That's for, that's for, for commercial TV. Um, We have to really be talking about how are we choosing in our communities to use our monies and are we choosing to use our monies in ways that empower communities and give communities what they need rather than placing them in a situation in a scenario where they feel like they are being threatened and controlled rather than supported.
0: Awesome, I appreciate that. Let's see, because you were doing the snapping and you were in agreement, is there anything you want to add, Professor Boyd? You
2: know, uh, the
0: of defunding the police.
2: Attorney Austin Hillary is going to make me leave my tenured position and come and join her because she's saying exactly the right things. So let's, let's take a step back, let's unpack that a little bit. Crime is not the problem. Crime is symptomatic of larger problems in society. And when we look at the money going into policing, we're not talking about necessarily cutting officers or cutting wages, because between 80 and 85 percent of a police budget is um, payroll and benefits, and 20 percent of that is overtime. What would happen if we took some of that overtime money and reinvested into the community for the reason that people need overtime? And I think that's what's going um, to hit. And talking to uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti's people, he invested $250 million into preventative programs, and $150 million of that came out of LAPD's budget. And people lost their mind thinking that they couldn't have a police department. LAPD's budget is $1.8 billion. So taking $150 million took 6% of their overtime budget. And it goes into programs that uh, stops the reason that they need over time. And ultimately, if I may borrow the quote from Johnny Cochran in his final summation, who polices the police? We do by the actions that we take by making the community safe, because policing is reactive. So if we can do some proactive measures, then police can be back to being guardians again.
0: Oh, I feel like we're getting some passion on this panel. Okay. Um, chief Thompson, anything you want to add to defunding the Because you and I talked about it a
4: lot. Yeah, I, and, I, and I'll be quick. I, I think that, look, I don't
1: think there's a progressive police chief out there uh, that wouldn't trade 10 cops for another Boys and Girls Club within their, their community. Because it, it, it's it's those types of, of services that get to the root cause issues that create, as was just said, the symptom, which is crime, which is we we continually uh, address if we don't take a different approach, right? What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. The one thing that, that I give hesitation with with the defunding the police, and this is to what uh, my, my good friend Paul was talking about earlier with Newark, uh, and more, more, more importantly from the consent degree perspective, is when you get into the really troubled police department to start to peel the onions of the, the layers of the onion bag, you find that there's been a significant defunding in all the wrong places within those organizations, uh, the, the, the many times you'll find that people will go 20, 30 years and never receive another ounce of training in use of force or uh, any of the particulars that, that, that you would, it really shocks the conscious when, when, uh, when that becomes uh, known. I can tell you in Camden, um, the, the progress we were able to make, it was facilitated by police. and I think that's the key. We didn't force our way into a safer community. We became facilitators, conveners. We went from warriors to guardians. And our schools got better. I actually pulled police out of the schools. I didn't want to militarize the hallways of the classroom. I wanted to make it safer so that the kid walking to school could feel safe getting to school. And then when he get inside the school, let discipline be with the schools, right? And let's, because if a child is worried about getting to, or to and from school, they're not going to learn once they get there. So we, we, took, we took that approach. But with, when our education, when our graduation rate went up 10%, murder rate dropped 20 percent and you know there there is there is correlation between it and particularly when you start to get towards healthier communities you know one of one of the favorite sayings that i I like to steal is father boyle from from um la who says nothing stops a job or nothing stops a bullet like a job right and nothing ensures a job like an education so i think if we take a couple steps back we look at how can police play a a a a part in the role of getting towards that objective. I think what we find is, is more coalescing, more convening, less enforcement focused, looking at what's really are the, are the, the, the ills that are vexing a community. And if need be, if no other form of government's going to go in there and do it, then, then we should go in there and do that. We'd rather not. But if, if there needs to be mentors, if there needs to be, um, someone operating that capacity, I'd much rather a cop do that than be writing tickets all
0: day long. Got it. Okay. Well, thank you. So I have a list of different police reforms. I want to go through them, but kind of quickly, to be honest. Um, Let's start with change in nomenclature. You know, what is the Shakespearean um, quote, what arose by any any other name, smell as sweet, right? So, you know, what is this about? Do words really matter? I mean, I've heard things like guardians. I've heard um, we should call them public safety officers. Um, I've heard we should call them peace officers. Uh, I think I'm actually going to go to Attorney General Lynch first on this because you are the highest enforcement officer of the country. Talk to me. Does it matter what we call them or, or are we just stuck with police force?
4: I have to say that that um, that I'm not. I think that that's one thing to, to focus on. I, I actually want to echo what Professor um, Professor Hillary Austin said, and that, that this is really the, a reflection of the choices that we as a society are making. But it is important how we describe what police do and I think public safety officers tends to be more appropriate if you think about the communities that tend to have more resources and and that are healthier and tend to think hey there's no problem with the police they view them in a public safety context if you think of the communities that are challenged they usually have a very negative relationship with the police they really view them not just as police but almost as an invading force Um, so there is there is a benefit toward uh, viewing them in the light of public safety officers. But in order to, to make that really effective, we have to make their job one of public safety and not one of just enforcing harsh laws on people who've had no say in crafting those laws. So nomenclature is important, um, but I, actions speak louder than words.
0: Let's move on. Let's go to hiring more diverse, uh, a more diverse police force. Uh, I want to throw that one to you. Do you think that's enough? Do you think it's important? Talk to us.
3: Well, it's certainly not enough, but I think it has to be part and parcel of a a larger recipe uh, for creating reform. Look, there's been lots of literature and research done on diversity in many realms, in education, uh, in, in government, in policing, and it's no different here. If you have people that represent the people whom they are caring for and whom they are charged with supporting, uh, then that makes for a better police force. Uh, So of course, having diversity, and diversity has uh, has to deal with a breadth of areas. It's not just about race. Look, the problem of systemic racism in this country is related to many other isms, as I like to call them. Uh, We have racism. We have sexism. uh, We have have issues around religion. We have issues around gender identity. So we have to ensure that diversity in our law enforcement reflects the communities that they they serve. Uh, And it includes diversity at all of those levels. But again, that's just part and parcel of it. And I want to be sure that we don't fall into a trap because sometimes organizations will check off a box. We've got the diversity box filled, therefore we've met our requirements and what we need to do. Please let's make no mistake about it. That is simply one part of the recipe for change that we have to be looking at and addressing. And I would actually uh, portend that it's one of the lower level uh, boxes that we need to check. It's important but it doesn't get us to the heart of, of creating real change. Because as, as I'm sure Professor Boyd knows, uh, you know, we have police forces that are filled with uh, black and brown people who, who look just like the communities that they serve and represent. And some of them are bad actors, just as much as people who don't look like them. So let's, let's, not, be, let, let's not be swayed by diversity as only uh, you know, as, as, as the biggest part uh, of what we have to look at in terms of creating real change.
0: Okay. Well, we also hear as a police reform that the police should live in the communities that they police. And by the way, I I prefer that word you just used of caring Uh, in the communities for which they're caring. I'm going to go with that. I like that. Um, Let's go with Professor Boyd. But what do you think about having a residency requirement?
2: I actually like the idea a lot. A lot of chiefs don't like it because it cuts down on the amount of people that they can hire. I like it because it changes your attitude because you get to learn the norms and the mores of the community. You get to be part of the community. And every time I talk to a chief and I ask him about community, him or her about community policing and they point out several officers, I tell them that's a failed program because community policing is not a strategy, it's a philosophy. And having officers embedded in the community is part of that philosophy. And I can tell you, growing up in inner-city Boston, you realize the people that you're dealing with, you're going to see them at the grocery store, and you're going to see them, so you're going to treat them with levels of respect and dignity. It's really easy to roll in from somewhere out in the suburbs and put your knee on somebody's neck and then go back home again. If that officer lived in that community where he had his knee on the person's neck and all the people yelling at him, he would see them the next day at the grocery store, I think the outcome would have been a lot different.
0: But well, we happen to have a chief right here. I just want to see you anyth- have anything to add, Chief Thompson?
1: No, President- I, think, uh, I think Ms. Austin-Hillary and, and, and Lorenzo really uh, encapsulated. I don't think it have any anything more to it other than just uh, it's important that when you, when you seek diversity, that it's just not uh, a check the box. It's just not a, okay, we hit this number, now let's move on beyond that. Um, and, and sometimes, look, sometimes just getting diversity in there has is, is got to be the objective because it's so horrible what, what the numbers look like. Uh, but w- we can't allow it to just stop there. I, I can tell you that when, when I did have an opportunity, at one point in time, I did not have an opportunity to shape a command staff around me. Civil service would give me a list and tell me the people that, 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 uh, that would be sitting in, 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 in the different ranks. And what I found was that looked nothing like my community. It was it was generally it was all white males. I had no virtually no females, uh, and it was two thirds non minority. When I had the opportunity at a one year window to create a command staff, I was able to take it from one third minority to two thirds minority and triple the number of female uh, representation. And it was probably the most um, eclectic room of forward-thinking individuals that really helped us shape the organization, which, you know, is, is being able to make strides that had never been able to make in decades before. I think, I think,
5: I think that that Scott just alluded to a problem that needs to be discussed in the context of the residency requirement. I, I think everybody agrees that in the best of all possible worlds, you would have, guardians living in the communities for which they're caring or guarding but you'd have you also have to take a look in at civil service rules and union contracts you can't just impose the requirement and say it's a great thing without realizing that it certainly was the case when we were talking about what to do in newark that imposing that requirement without changing who's eligible to apply and how the civil service rules generate how people test won't won't actually have an impact on who gets hired that's first second You have to think about what it costs to live in particular communities and how much police officers make in those communities to figure out where in those communities they're actually going to be living and whether they can afford to be there at all. And, for example, the cost of living in San Francisco or New York or Boston is going to be different than it is in in Roanoke, Virginia, or Boise, Idaho. And so and so all of those things have to be discussed. I'm not saying the requirement is a bad one. It's a great idea. And is obviously very conducive to the kinds of things that Professor Boyd was talking about. But
0: you're yeah, just saying it's complicated. It, it's a little more
5: complicated, I think. Much as, much as, much as, as as Nicole was pointing out that the that that you can't just say diversity and you're done, right? There Got are of other things that go into these into these ideas that are- I aren't.
0: appreciate that. I didn't think about that, so I, I really appreciate that, Paul. Thank you so much. Okay, can I assume everybody here is okay with a ban on chokeholds? Raise your hand if you disagree. Okay, we're good. Moving on. What about this idea of no-knock warrants? And I'm going to go ahead and just pick the person I want to pick because we had a discussion about this and you know who you are. Uh, What what is your feeling, Chief Thompson, about no-knock warrants? And actually, I'm sorry, forgive me. Before you you do it, let me actually have Attorney General Lynch explain what a no-knock warrant is. And then I'm going to have you respond, Chief Thompson.
4: essentially you have if, if you are if you're conducting a search uh, particularly if you are looking to arrest an individual for a violent crime often police officers will ask for the ability to execute the warrant which they've gotten from a judge without announcing themselves in any way and so it's called a no-knock warrant but it also includes not just knocking not, not just not hitting the door, but not calling out that you are police, not identifying yourself. And the premise that has to be shown to a neutral magistrate, um, and there has to be probable cause to believe this, is that the situation that they're walking into is, is dangerous. And the level of danger is greater than the usual arrest, because every arrest carries with it a certain risk, and most of the time you still have to announce announce yourself and not before you go into a private home. But the situation is so dangerous that you can dispense with that requirement. And, and in, in my view, they should be very rare. They should be ex- extremely rare and require a fairly high showing of danger.
0: Okay, so I picked on Chief Thompson only because he had already shared with me that he's not totally enamored with this idea of a no not a no, not uh, policy.
1: And I, I think I would I would just continue on with kind of what uh, the general was saying that I I don't think that a general a,
0: now I like it go ahead
1: I'm sorry <laughs> um, I, I don't think that just the 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 blanket prohibition uh, is I I do think that there I think the question should be where should the threshold be that makes the the the, the judicial determination of whether that tactic can be utilized there are some extremely rare situations wherein you're dealing with some really, really bad individuals and that it's actually safer for the public and it's safer for the officers that are executing the warrant. And it could be going into a place that has fortifications and the like. And sometimes this information is known either through undercover sources and the like. Um, So what I'm saying is that there there are extremely rare circumstances where I do think that it, it is in the, in the best interest for that to be utilized. I think part of the problem is, is that there has been this correlation over time between drug dealing and violence, because of the violence that comes from drug dealing, to think that everybody engaged in drug dealing is a violent actor, and that's not the case. So therefore, not every drug arrest or drug warrant should automatically equate to a no not warrant.
0: Got it, okay, moving on really quickly. I'm gonna go to Professor Boyd. Duties for intervention, what do you think? Should a police officer who sees another police officer um, engage in misconduct? Should they have to report it? Should they have to intervene in any way? What do you think?
2: Not only should they have to report it, I think on the scene, they need to intervene. Because if we're able to do that, if we're able to let the bad actors understand that the good officers are gonna stand up to them and stop them from doing that, that's gonna save a lot of lives. And I was doing a, uh, a, a seminar, a webinar in New York, and I said, most police officers are good people. And one of the participants said, if there are so many good police officers, where are they when the bad police officers are doing the bad things? And if they don't do something, aren't they then bad? So yeah, absolutely, they should have a, a duty to intervene.
0: So very quickly, is there anyone who disagrees with that? No, okay, we're gonna move on. What about the proactive prosecution of hate crimes? And Fishman, you know I'm going to come to you on this because we were talking about this. And you said, well, what exactly do you mean? I'm saying that there seem to be some prosecutors in the United States who are saying that uh, we really need to be more proactive in the prosecution of hate crimes, whether it's against police officers or other citizens as well. Um, What were your thoughts with respect to that?
5: So I, I think in the abstract, it's a perfectly fine thing to say, but I think the, the, it depends on what people mean by that and what kinds of things they have in their heads when they're talking about hate crimes. Um, you know, it, 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 we, all have a, we all have a shared sense, maybe not everybody does, but I, I'm sure all the people on this call have a, have a shared sense that when people commit an act of violence and do it for a racist reason, or, or some other have some other motive or intent or state of mind that causes them to act because of something we find abhorrent as, as a, as a, in the way people think to begin with, that that makes the crime worse. The, the issue that prosecutors and, and, and I think police officers think about when they're trying to put those cases together is, is that going to cause me to have to prove more to a jury than, than what I would otherwise have to prove to put this horrible person behind bars. And, and so, so in the abstract, the idea of hate crimes is, is very important. I think it's very important for Congress and state legislatures to make a statement that certain kinds of acts taken with certain kinds of motives, with certain kind of intent, are worse, and we will think about them worse, and everyone would agree on that. But but actually saying, well, you now have to prove to the jury that what that particular defendant was thinking at the moment he pulled the trigger. Do you really want to add that to the burden when you already have footage of the person buying the gun and going and shooting somebody? That's the that's I think is the question.
0: Actually, so for the non-lawyers, in other words, it's more difficult to prove if there's a a hate crime involved because of the elements of the crime.
4: But (laughs) I think uh, yeah. Judge Lynch, Attorney Lynch. The reason why I think it's important, that Paul is absolutely right about the practical issues involved in charging and proving hate crimes, but the reason why I think it actually is important, and I think it's important not just from the point of view of, of having been able to prosecute crimes under the Matthew Shepard James Byrd Act, uh, which is a very, very important recognition of, of, uh, of hate crimes, but that states recognize it as well, because it really is through our criminal justice system. That we that we show what's important to us and who's important to us, um, and there has been historically an under recognition of the value of certain lives when they are lost, and those lives tend to be black and brown. And so, when you look at crimes like like, uh, and I don't want to you know single out South Carolina, but but not, but the Dylan Roof shooting. Um, at the Mother Emanuel Church, and also the police shooting of the unarmed black men in North Charleston, and to realize that South Carolina doesn't have a hate crimes law. you know. So you, you look at, at, at certain communities, and they've chosen to say, when every community says murder is a terrible thing, we're going to punish it. Um, many communities have said that racism is a terrible thing, and if that's, if that's your animus, if that sort of... Of of animus that we as a country have said we do not endorse is part of it, that we're gonna also let prosecutors use that as a tool in your prosecution or in your sentencing. And and so I think when we look at at communities that don't recognize that, you have to ask those communities what are they saying about the value of black and brown life? Um, and, and it really does come down to that. When we think about how we not just how we police, but how we prosecute and the cases we choose to bring and the way in which we choose to charge certain defendants over others and the way in which victimology makes an incredible difference in the prosecution of a lot of, of much of the violent crime in this country. So I would say that that, that Paul is absolutely right. It, it is a challenging issue. It's a difficult issue, but I think it's one worth discussing and one worth taking up.
0: I appreciate the viewpoint. Okay. National Registry of Police Misconduct uh attorney austin hillary can i throw that at you what do you
3: think i absolutely think we have to have accountability you know that's one of the pillars uh that is required if we're going to have real reform um no one should be able to hide behind their actions um so collecting data registering information has to be a part of it so yes we absolutely should be put on notice and have should have transparency about bad actions that have been taken by police officers and not only just the bad actions, but what have been the results of those actions? We need to know how have they been addressed? What, have the, what has the leadership that oversees those individuals done uh, to really show them uh, that this is a problem, their actions were problems, and that they will be held accountable when they behave in ways that are not, uh, that are not the ways in which we expect our law enforcement uh, officers to behave.
0: And let me just be clear. One of the reasons we'll call for it is because um, there have been instances where a, a policeman or a sheriff or what have you has um, engaged in misconduct. They get fired, but then they just move on to another town um, very quickly. Professor Boyd, can you tell me though? Is that practical to have such well, a Do you see any kind of problems with that?
2: Well, the problem that I see is there's a lot of states that have it, but like the UCR, it's voluntary. We have to make it mandatory, because if you look at a lot of the officers, there are many, many, many complaints, and many of them have been in other jurisdictions, because Jennings, Missouri, did similar to what Camden did, got rid of some of the officers. One of the officers that they jettisoned was Darren Wilson. He then shows up in Ferguson, kills Michael Brown. If we had a registry, then the other departments would have known, and it needs to be mandatory.
0: Okay, I'm running out of time, but I wanna hit just a few things very quickly. Licensure, ah, I can't even say it, pardon me. Licensure police officers, there we go. So, you know, doctors, they have licenses, they're disciplinary committees. Lawyers, we even have uh, continuing legal education courses, if you will. Um, I think I'm gonna throw it right back to you, Professor Board, because I know you study and deal with all of this. Should there be licensure of police officers?
2: Not only should there be licensure, but I think police officers should also carry liability insurance. Because if we go back to qualified immunity, I think that's part of the problem that we see. Because a lot of police officers will do things, and then under the guise of, if, I, if, if something happened, the city's going to bail me out, or the municipality's going to bail me out. If we have licensure, something we can pull from them, and they have some sort of um, insurance, then... We have to look at the holistic approach at the person being wronged. So if that happens, then there could be a payout to the community and the police officer could be off the street.
0: Okay, I wanted to make sure we we ended on a high note, if you will. So I need for Chief Thompson, if you would, and I'm sorry, I said you're gonna have about eight to 10 minutes, you only have five, but can you please share with us, just describe at a high level, what happened in Camden that was so amazing?
1: Well, and uh, to provide a little bit of context, Camden, a city of uh, seventy-seven thousand nine square miles, sits on the eastern bank of the Delaware River. If you were to remove the Delaware River, it would be center city, Philadelphia. Uh, it's 96% minority, and cities of 50000 or more, it's the poorest in the country, with a per capita income of less than $14,000 a year. It has the highest unemployment rates in the state, and the highest uh, dropout rates in the state as well. It leads the nation as well in single-parent households for for. Uh, cities of its size, uh, 86% of the households are single parent households. <clears throat> I say all that to say that it's a perfect storm of social inequities, which creates symptoms, which are the dropout rates, addiction, uh, crime. And, uh, you know, so Kim is extremely challenged. I came on the organization in the, in the, in the early 90s uh, the city in the 60s and 70s were devastated by race riots that were predicated by police violence. So extremely high levels of mistrust between the police and the community. Police looked, viewed themselves as warriors. Police looked at themselves as, as hammers and everything was a nail around them. And that was the approach that uh, just was just the culture, just the way things were. With, the police couldn't couldn't effectuate anything. Our, 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 our measure was how quickly we got there and whether we could solve it after the fact. Um, In 2011, the economic downturn hit Camden, and we laid off 46% of the organization in one day. And then uh, as as they were looking to stand the organization up, um, 2013, a political decision was made to create a new police department uh, and fire everybody. And it it, it was a rare opportunity wherein you had um, Chris Christie was a Republican governor. We had Democratic leadership in the county and Democratic leadership in in the city. And everybody was put an order to order and rode in the same direction uh, and, and, and made that occur. So in 2013, the entire Kansas City Police Department, including myself, we were fired. Uh, I was a police chief for five years, a cop for 20. And I had to fill out a 50-page application. I had to take a psychological. I had to take a, a medical. And I was a new employee, uh, but I was given a one-year relaxation of civil service rules. I could hire virtually anybody I wanted um, and I could hire and I could promote within a very, very um, liberal uh, promotional system, which gave, essentially gave me a blank sheet of paper. Uh, I now had the the opportunity to build culture rather than the challenge of changing culture. So I, what I could literally do in three days would have taken me three years uh, it, it, vis-a-vis the, the, the status quo of resistance that, that had existed before in litigation and the like. Now I will say this, we talked about unions. I had in, in my city police department I had a very recalcitrant union, fought me, litigate me, everything I did. First six months, I had 100 grievances and eight lawsuits filed against me. County police force, same exact union, Colonel Ward police, different leadership, tremendous facilitators as, as, as responsible for the success of, of what we were able to build as, as anyone else. But when we when we started this new organization, we completely changed the metrics in which we would uh, determine how our performance was. We no longer looked at tickets. We no longer looked at arrests. Um, we learned. We brought in the ACLU. We brought in our community. We 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 tried to right the wrongs that we had been committing. You know, we took the approach of what was the definition of sanity? Like I said earlier, how could we reduce the 175 open air drug markets that were negatively defining everyone else's life and uh, we created guardians rather than the warriors. And this was not universally accepted at first. In fact, uh, one of the questions that, that President Obama had asked when he visited Camden was, how did you get cops to do this? And I said, you know, well, as president, we, we didn't ask permission, All right, we took the paddy wagon, we loaded them up with cops, and we drove through some of the most crime-ridden neighborhoods and challenged neighborhoods in North America, and we kicked cops out of the car and said, two in this corner, one in that corner. And I said, Sheila, this is your area of responsibility for the next 12 hours. Um, we don't want you making an arrest unless it's for a violent offense in your presence. We don't want you writing tickets. We want you to get to know the people in the community, knock on doors, introduce yourself to people. And this is where you're going to exist for the next 12 hours. We're not coming back for you. So if you've got to go to the bathroom, you better make a friend. And if you want to get something to eat, you better find a good cook as a neighborly uh, and completely change the dynamic. And you know, we had people that were, were fearful that couldn't leave their homes. So and the dynamic was changed in that we want to see people sitting on their front steps. We want to see little kids riding their bikes in front of the houses. So we then reduced drug corners and would reduce shootings by deploying ice cream trucks and barbecues just to get people to re- reclaim public space. And the results since then is we've reduced murders by more than 65%. We've reduced overall crime by more than 50%. We've reduced our excessive force complaints by 95%.
0: And, and
1: giving it's been—it's yes. been sustainable. Um, awesome. The beauty of all of it is—is is this? It wasn't because the police enforced it to a safer community. The police empowered the people to reclaim their neighborhoods, and the success is really attributable to the resiliency of the people that were there. That we were companions
0: along the way. Thank you so much, and congratulations! Very quickly. Attorney General Lynch, what can lawyers do? I'm I'm not a prosecutor. Um, I'm not a civil rights lawyer. Is there anything that I can do in this struggle?
4: This is a struggle for everyone. Um, And really view yourself as a lawyer. All of you who are watching and listening, as also members of your community, get involved in this issue. Get to know who your police chief is. Get to know who your patrol officers are. Participate in the community meetings that talk about their policies, that talk about their issues. And if you are in a challenged area where, where there has been this breakdown of trust, there has been this, this lack of connection between the community and the police, work on that issue. And the things, the, all, everything that everyone's been talking about today is what you have to do. You have to have, first and foremost, communication between the community and the police officers who were sworn to protect and serve them. Be a part of that dialogue.
0: Amen to that. All right, I want each of you to have your last words. Uh, I have declared for my presidency of the New York City Bar, the theme is hashtag bar of hope. So I want each of you to begin with the phrase, my hope is, Paul Fishman. Turn on your mic.
5: Sorry about that. My hope is that this moment in American history is not like previous moments in American history. Um, I've been in and around law enforcement for almost 40 years, and I have seen other episodes where we all swore that things were going to be different going forward. My hope is that, that, that that the killing of Mr. Floyd ends up actually motivating people to make real, substantive,
2: lasting change.
0: Lorenzo Boyd, my hope is.
2: My hope is that community members and police officers work together to build bridges into the future.
3: Nicole M. Austin Hillary, my hope is. My hope is that we are in a moment where we can actually make America be true to its values and that we will create a level playing field for all regardless of race, regardless of gender, ability, sexual identity, religion, and that we will recognize that there is an inextricable link between race, poverty, economic inequality, and all of the things that put us in a position where some people are treated as less than. Let's level the playing field so that we are, we are all treated with real justice and equality. That is my hope, that we will do that.
0: Thank you. Chief J. Scott Thompson, my hope is...
1: You know, my hope is that uh, policing as an institution will allow the community to have a guiding hand on the steering wheel, and that we, we reform ourselves into the 21st century, rather than being compelled to do so through legislation and court
4: And Attorney General Loretta Lynch, my hope is... My hope is that every Black and brown child in this country will be able to look at a police officer and view them as a protector, and someone that they can trust. That is my fervent hope. We are far from that. But this is a country based on ideals, based on aspirations, and we do hard things. We can do this.
0: I began with the first half of a quote by Senator Cory Booker. I'm going to end it with the second half of that quote. and It says, you can't have hope without despair, because hope is a response. Hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word." To that I say amen. I thank our fabulous panelists, Loretta Lynch, Paul Fishman, Nicole Austin-Hillary, Lorenzo Boyd, and Jay Scott Thompson. God bless you all. Thank you, audience. Please stay healthy. Please stay safe and keep hope alive. Hashtag Bar of Hope. Take care, everybody.